We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24. If you want to flip there in your Bibles this morning, we'll have the reading on the screen as well. But we have a lot to get through. Um, there, there's a lot to cover this morning. We're going to be talking about everybody's favorite topic that is in times and judgment day. We'll talk a little bit about Boy Scouts and my uncle and who knows where else God might take us this morning. But we're all going to be grounded this morning in Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be reading verses 36 through 44 together. And if you want to Join me in your Bibles or on the screen, you are welcome to. But the word of God comes to us and it reads this way. In fact, these are the words of Jesus. It says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of God for the people of God. If you were wondering if there was anything different about the sanctuary this week, but couldn't quite put your finger on it, you are absolutely correct. I shaved my beard off. It's gone. No, I'm just kidding. I did do that. Paige said that I had to, so I do. Happy wife, happy life, right? But no, there's greenery hung. There are lights. There are trees, ornaments, wreaths. If you didn't pick up on that, well, I'm glad that I could point all of that out to you and draw your attention to it. It is the Christmas season. And as soon as the first decorations go up, the ever-looming question of the season begins to gnaw in the back of all of our minds, are we ready for Christmas? Our readiness for Christmas is often seen through the checking off the litany of tasks that need to be done before December 25th. Family cards, Christmas cards need to be sent. Lights need to be hung. Wish lists need to be written. Wish lists need to be collected, gifts need to be purchased, logistics need to be outlined, mental exercises need to be practiced in anticipation of seeing your crazy family that you've avoided for the past 365 days. And it's in all of this sort of preparation, working through our list, that we become ready for Christmas. But this season of preparing for Christmas has long been part of the Christian practice, in fact, there is a name for those weeks that we sort of prepare for Christmas in the Christian tradition. It's, these weeks are known as Advent. Advent marks the start of the Christian calendar or the Christian year. So Happy New Year, everybody. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent always begins four Sundays before Christmas. And the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, 
which is a translation of the Greek word parousia, which you were all hoping to discover this morning. But parousia was actually in the text that we read this morning and is translated as coming or arrival. Specifically within the scriptures, it's a reference to the arrival of God's Messiah, the coming of the Savior of the world to the world. And there was the first coming of Jesus and his life and ministry 2,000 years ago. But each year at Advent, we are reminded that Jesus' work is not yet complete. The world is still not what it ought to be. The world is still in need of a savior. The world is still in darkness. This is why the hymn writer sings, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Advent comes each year as a reminder of our need and longing for Jesus to come again and to complete his saving work. And we stand in this current moment between these two great historical events the incarnation 2,000 years ago, and the anticipated coming of Jesus again, which is unknown when that will happen, but is assured to us in Scripture. And Advent's arrival to us each year, it's, it's a reminder that we ought to live our lives in constant readiness for Jesus. See, the first Advent of the coming of our Savior and God's Messiah, we see John who readies the world. He prepares the way for the coming Messiah. But what does it mean for us to be ready for this next coming of our Lord and Savior? And this is the focus of this morning's passage. And let me tell you, it has very little to do with buying gifts, hanging lights, and selecting trees, fake or real. But when we consider Jesus' coming again, we unfortunately, oftentimes, we get distracted by the issues of when and how Jesus will return to us again. The consequence of this thinking has led us to wild speculation and obsession about the time, date, and way that Jesus will come to judge both the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed states it. You see, church history, it's filled with preachers and Bible teachers who wrongly predicted the day and the year and the way that Jesus was going to return. At best, such predictions are the result of futile time spent, according to Jesus. I mean, he teaches us in this morning's passage, nobody knows the day or the time. Angels don't know. In fact, I don't even know what's going on here. Just the Father knows. And so if anybody ever predicts, just by the way, a day and time when the Lord is coming, just know that that's not the day. That's the exact day that he's not going to come back because nobody knows. But at worst, these predictions, frankly, are an embarrassment to Christians and the church, and they harm our witness. But what's worse than any of that, though, is that when we hear that sort of are you ready for Jesus' coming again, is we often default to thinking about this sort of end times, Armageddon, and all this kind of crazy stuff that we sort of think we know, but we don't really know, right? But when we think of that, and that becomes the filter through which we think about Jesus' coming again, it hinders us from considering that Jesus might want to come in the middle of these two events, He might want to come in the middle of the incarnation and his second coming in a very unexpected way. You see, the theologian Bernard of Clairvaux wrote about three comings of Jesus. In fact, he preached it this way. He says, the first coming was in flesh and weakness. The middle coming is in spirit and power. And the final coming will be in glory and majesty. This middle coming is like a road that leads from the first coming to the last. 
At the first, Christ was our redemption. At the last, he will become manifest as our life. But in this middle way, he is our rest and our consolation. That is, did you know that Jesus wants to come to the world this day in power and in spirit? Were you aware that Jesus wants to come to your neighbors? And he wants to come to your friends. And he wants to come to your family. And he wants to come to our city today. And the question that we always have to wrestle with is, are we ready to receive him? Or perhaps for some of us, are we ready to share him? You see, Advent reminds us each year that Jesus longs to come to the world in the present moment. Jesus is coming to the world still today. This is one of the ways that Advent highlights the gospel news to us each year. God came to the world in his son Jesus to demonstrate that he is for the world and not against the world. That he longs to bind and care for our wounds. That he wants to heal our brokenness. That he wants to set us free from the prisons that entrap us in our lives. He wants to open blind eyes to light. And he wants to lead those who are wandering aimlessly through this life with a sense of direction and purpose and meaning. Advent reminds us that he is ready to come and do this work in the world. And the question is, are you ready for him to come and do this work in your life? About four months ago, Jesus came into my uncle's life. My mom was recounting the story to me this past Thanksgiving. A lot of my family, they are not Christians and they are not believers. But on an ordinary day, in the midst of his working life, there was a woman who came into my uncle's workplace, perhaps sent by God. He was at a time in his life where he's just wrestling with all sorts of things. He's been dealing with all sorts of issues. And this lady, she did not invite my uncle to church she did not say like, hey, you know, like we got this great outreach event that I want you to come to. She did not try and persuade him of like, this is why you should be a Christian. This is why it makes more sense to have these theological convictions than not have them. But rather this woman boldly and courageously shared how Jesus had come into her life. What happened when Jesus came into her life? And on an ordinary day, in the midst of his working life, my uncle came to know Jesus and has been walking with the Lord ever since. That conversation changed his life for eternity. May we be so bold to share Jesus with the world who might be ready to receive him, but are we ready as a church to share him? See, if you have not yet received Jesus in your life, know that he wants to come into your life, perhaps even today. The creator God of the universe wants to come to you. Might you receive him this day? But for those of us who have received Jesus, the text this morning sort of directs our attention to consider the state of our readiness for his coming again. You see, Jesus is very clear Christians and disciples of him, his followers, ought to live in readiness. They ought to be prepared for his coming again. You see, the misguided attempt at evangelism, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, it makes me just like, it makes my skin crawl whenever I hear people talk about this. But they'll ask this question to people who don't know Jesus. Do you know where you would go if you were to die today? This question has unfortunately led us to believe that readiness is all about what we believe, or at least what we profess to believe. That is, if I just say the words, I believe in Jesus, that he is my Lord and Savior, then I will be ready for Christ to come again. 
I'd be ready to meet Jesus at my death, perhaps. But let me remind you that Christian faith has never worked like magic. It has never given us the magic spell or the hocus pocus where we could just say the right words in the right ways and then all would be well with our lives and the world. Now, to be sure, I believe in Romans where it says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But one of the things that we as followers of Jesus need to be mindful of is our goal is not to reduce to get down to the bare minimum of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's to increase and maximize what it is that we want to receive from God. And when we reduce, we often limit what it is that the gospel has to say to us this day. You see, one of the tragedies of approaching evangelism in this way is that there becomes this abyss between the moment that I profess faith and the moment that I die is it has this picture in mind that faith has nothing to do with my life that I'm living in between these two great events. It only has something to do with my life after death. But is this what Jesus meant to be ready, that you just need to say these things, just believe these things, just make a profession of faith, and then you're all good, you're all prepared, you're all ready? Might he have meant something else? In 1908, Lieutenant General Robert Baden-Powell wrote the fourth best-selling book of the 20th century. You probably have never heard of this man or author, but the book was titled Scouting for Boys. Baden-Powell had written earlier a military training manual that was being used by teachers and youth organizations, sort of equip kids for a life of service in their communities and in their countries, and to sort of live a life of discipline. And this book, in his work, it became the foundation for the international scouting movement, which I didn't know started in the United Kingdom. Shame on me. I thought the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts was like an American thing. Totally not. Totally not original to us. But in the motto of the scouting movement, you can find it in this original work by Powell. And the motto, many of you may know it, is this, be prepared, right? Scouts, be prepared. According to Powell, he defined what it meant to be prepared. He said it this way, you are always, to be prepared is when you are always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. You are always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. And he clarifies, being prepared in mind, according to Powell, is to know the right thing to do at the right moment and being willing to do it. To be prepared in your mind is to know what to do, when you should do it, and having a willingness to do it. Being prepared in body, he said, was being able to do the right thing at the right moment and doing it. That is, you are capable of doing the right thing. You know when you do it and you actually do it. Prepared in mind and prepared in body. Prepared in knowledge and prepared in action. They're two sides of the same coin for the scouts. Know what to do and do it. And perhaps we would do well as Christians Not merely to be prepared in mind, I believe all of the right things, but also in body. That is, that we too in our actions are prepared for the Lord's coming again. In fact, Jesus seems to suggest our readiness for his coming isn't seen in mere belief, but also in action. If we continued reading in the gospel this morning on from Matthew chapter 24, we would discover exactly what Jesus means when he says, you must be ready. You see, this portion of scripture that we read from Matthew's gospel 
is part of this section of Matthew's gospel known as the fifth discourse. You see, throughout Matthew's gospel, there are five long teachings or sections of teachings that Jesus delivers to his disciples. We, unfortunately, only really know the first one. Do you know what it is? You know what it is. Come on, Matthew chapter 5. What is it? The Sermon on the Mount. It's the first discourse in Matthew's gospel. And the last one started at the beginning of chapter 24, and it concludes at the end of 25 with two stories, the parable of the talents and Jesus' description of the final judgment day. Oftentimes in the church and oftentimes in our own reading of the Bible, the temptation is at times to take like eight verses right, and then read them and think like, oh man, this feels really great. This makes me feel really happy. I wonder what this means. But we remove them from the chapters and the books and the book, and we don't ever think about how they fit together with everything else around them. And the consequence of removing verses like this from the context in which they were written is that you lose clarity and depth of what's being said. So like the passage that we read this morning, you may have heard it and you hear this of like, taking away and people are staying and you have these pictures of what that might mean or whatever that means. And and without fitting it within the broader context of Matthew's gospel, we get into some really crazy, weird theology. I mean, can you imagine a world where we would take snippets of what someone said and then replay them on news channels over and over and over again or write about them in articles without providing the larger context in which those statements were said. Like, can you imagine a world where that happened? Where you might see like an hour-long interview and they take like a 10-second clip and then they put it on Twitter and it just gets played over and over? That would be weird if we lived in a world like that. Like, I wonder if they would lead to misunderstanding. I wonder if it would lead to miscommunication at all. If only we lived in a world where that happened, we might understand the consequences of reading that way. That was a joke, and I see smiles and smirks, but no laughter. That hurts my feelings. I worked really hard on that moment. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You see, if we set our current passage within the larger context of the fifth discourse of Jesus, we can begin to see what he means when he instructs his disciples that you must be ready. Of particular interest for us are the final two teachings in the fifth discourse the parable of the talents in Jesus' description of Judgment Day, and they have two things to instruct us this morning of what it means to be ready. In the first, the parable of the talents, Jesus tells the story of a master who goes away and entrusts his money to three servants. The amount of money that he gives to his servants is known as a talent. A talent was approximately 15 years of wages for a laborer in Jesus' day. Uh, think of it, if we were to use California's minimum wage, which we all love, and it's going up in January, exciting news, but if we use that as a sort of base salary, one talent would be approximately, in our day, $468,000, 15 years of minimum wage earnings, just under a half million dollars. And in the parable that Jesus tells The master gives one servant five talents, approximately $2.3 million. To another, he gives two talents, just under $1 million. And to the last, he gives one talent, just under $500,000. I would be feeling slighted if I was the third one. But we're told that the first servant 
worked really hard in his master's absence and doubled the master's money from $2.3 million to $4.6 million. The second servant does the same thing. He doubles the money given from $1 million to $2 million. I need people like this working in the church. And the third servant does no such thing. The third servant takes his money and buries the money in the sand. This would be the equivalent of just taking the money and setting it into a checking account. Like, dude, you couldn't put that in the savings account? Get like half a percent on interest? Like something, come on, man. But after a long time, Jesus goes on in the parable. The master of these servants returns. Take note of what Jesus is saying here. This isn't just a story about servants. There is a master who is with the servants And then the master goes away for a long time, and then he returns. Jesus might be talking about himself here. I don't know. But when he returns, he discovers that two servants worked really hard, and the third buried what he had been given. The two servants are ready for the master's return. The third was not. And the two are rewarded for being prepared and for their work. And the third faces the judgment of their master. You see, parables, they're fictitious stories that Jesus uses to make a very real point in the world. And in Jesus' parables, there's often a sort of God character and there's a character that represents us, right? Right? And in this parable, it's clear who the God character is. He is the master who leaves and entrusts his wealth to the servants. And it's clear who we are, who Jesus' follows are in the story. We are the servants. But this parable is not about finances. This is not about making money for God. You see, the very real point of the story is that the servants of God have been entrusted with something that they would never be able to earn themselves. That regardless of how much effort they put in, no matter how hard they worked and for how long they could work for it, they would never be able to earn what was given to them. And they are in the absence of their master to put what they've been given to work in the world. That is the disciples of Jesus, they have been given the gospel. They have been given this news about Jesus, that he is the Lord and Savior and the light of the world. And they are to put that gospel news to work in the world. And the question that comes to us in this parable is what kind of servants are we going to be? Are we going to be the kinds of servants that bury the gospel news in a sanctuary building where we never share it or allow it to work or allow it to double its impact in the world through us? Or are we going to be the servants who work tirelessly in the absence of our master that more might come to receive the gospel? What kind of servants are we going to be? You see, to be ready, Jesus is saying, is to be active in service of the gospel's mission in the world. Are we going to be ready or are we not ready? The concluding teaching of the discourse, though, is a well-known teaching by Jesus of what judgment will be like when he returns. Let me just say, I hate talking about judgment in a public setting. It makes me really uncomfortable, but Jesus talked about it, so we got to do it. You see, the picture that Jesus paints in this final teaching is of judgment day where people will be separated into the sheep and to the goats. The sheep, he says, are those who will inherit the gift of eternal life and enter into the eternal joy of their master. 
And they are demarcated by their actions in the world. In fact, Jesus specifies what kind of actions sort of set them apart from the goats. They are the ones, according to Jesus, who give food to the hungry. They give drink to the thirsty. They clothe the naked. They visit the imprisoned and they visit the sick. These are the ones who enter and are ready to enter into their master's joy. And in the second half of this sort of teaching of Jesus, this picture that he's painting, he starts describing what the goats are like, and they're quite, frankly, the complete opposite of the sheep. There are people who do not feed the hungry. They do not give drink to the thirsty. They do not clothe the naked. They do not visit the sick, and they do not visit the imprisoned. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, like, you know all those people who party and do crazy things that you all know is wrong. Like, they're all goats. It's not what he says. The picture that Jesus paints is of people who are engaged with merciful, charitable acts in the world. Those who did it, they are the sheep. Those who do not do it, they are the goats. And the question is, Jesus presents to us in that final picture, are you engaged in this kind of work? Are you ready for that day of judgment according to Jesus. You see, to be ready is to be engaged in merciful acts in the world. Taking the scope of this final discourse of Jesus in Matthew's gospel teaches and reveals to us that there's so much that we don't know about Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know how, we don't know what it will be like, but there is much that we do know. Namely, we know how to live lives that are ready for the master to return. We know what it's like to be prepared for the coming judgment of God. When the Son of Man will come again, we know as disciples what we need to do to be ready. To live this way, we need to engage in active service of the gospel in the world. And we need to be engaged with merciful acts in the world. That's what it means to live readied lives, to live Advent. And Jesus likens this way of living, this way of anticipating his coming with the life of Noah in this morning's passage. Noah lived much of his early life building a giant wooden boat in the middle of a desert. (laughs) He looked crazy. He probably looked very strange, if not downright ridiculous. This is not 2019 when Noah's building this boat. This is like thousands and thousands of years ago. There's no trailer. There's no semi. There's no roads. It's going to plop the boat on and take it over to the Mediterranean Sea so that he can use it one day. He's literally building a watercraft in the middle of sand. It was probably a curious thing for the world to watch him build tirelessly for years and years this boat that seemed to serve no purpose and no function. Noah's life Jesus says, stood in stark contract from those around him. That is, while everyone else was going about sort of their living their normal, ordinary lives, eating, drinking, getting married, giving away in marriage, Noah was living a very particular, peculiar kind of life, so different from the normal and so different from the ordinary. But in time, though, Noah's life proves to make more sense of the world than those he was surrounded by. Because when the rain came and the flood rose, Noah was ready and Noah was prepared and suddenly there was an aha moment that all of what he's been doing and spending his life doing makes a whole lot of sense. This is church at times, what it feels like to live in Advent, to live readied and prepared 
in the world today. You see, the Christian life, anchored in the hope of Jesus' coming again, ought to look strange. We ought to look like we're living in the desert, building a boat in the wilderness to the world. See, all around, the world suggests we ought to promote our brand. We ought to develop our platform. We ought to pursue our dreams. We ought to look inside of ourselves for that dream and vision of what we want our life to be, and we'll discover our life's purpose. But living Advent means to find the foundation of our life and the purpose and focus for our work in our Master and in our Lord. We work tirelessly not on our own behalf for our own gain, but for his, for his kingdom. All around the world, the the world suggests to us that we ought to accumulate as much wealth as we possibly can, right? This is Black Friday. How many of you guys went shopping? You got to buy, 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 buy. We ought to enjoy the finest dining experiences in the fanciest restaurants. We ought to dress ourselves in the best kind of clothes. And we got to visit and network and develop relationships with people who can allow us to pursue our career to help us climb the corporate ladder. Have relationships with people who can give you something in return. But living Advent means giving away our wealth, using it in service for others, Visiting and caring the sick and the imprisoned, the orphan and the widow, those who have nothing to give back to you in your life. Jesus says, those are the ones that you need to invest your energy into. Those are the ones that you need to love. Those are the ones that you need to spend your time with. But how often we avoid at all costs those types of people. You see, living this way, Living in this Advent way will look strange to the world at times. We will look like boat builders in the desert. But in time, the readied and prepared life will make a whole lot of sense when Jesus comes again. One of the things that as I was wrestling with this passage this week, I was wondering, is there any part of my life that looks like a boat builder in a desert? Is there anything in my life that just looks so strange because it makes total sense of the kingdom of God, but it makes total nonsense of kingdoms of this world? What in my life looks like a boat builder in the wilderness? Is anything about our church, do we look like boat builders in the desert? Do we look like strange, crazy people just doing odd things? And let me clarify, we shouldn't look odd just to look odd. We shouldn't look crazy just to look crazy. There's plenty of religious people that do that out there, not in our church. There's no weird people that are crazy in our church that look strange. But our lives, our oddities, our quirks as followers of Jesus should look strange but to the world but look totally normal. When you look to Jesus, the world should be like, aha, I, I see why you live that way. It's interesting, we'll end with this, to know that the root of the word advent is shared by the word adventure. What we discover in living advent, in living ready for our Lord, is that we're living prepared and ready, is that we live in adventure, working for God's purpose, engaged in merciful acts for the sake of the world. This does not lead us to live a lesser life. It leads, in fact, to live more of life. It leads, as Jesus describes, of living a full life. Too often we think of living ready for Jesus' coming again as something that we ought to be scared of, something that we ought to fear, something because judgment day is coming and we are terrified. But to live in readiness for Jesus is not to live in fear. 
It is to live in joyful expectation of that day when our Lord will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Your life makes so much sense. Come, share in my eternal joy. This is why the hymn concludes, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. The coming of our Lord is something to anticipate with enthusiasm and excitement. And the question is, are we ready for Christmas? This hopeful expectation anchors our strange, adventurous, boat-building lives in the world, preparing us that we might be ready for Christmas. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so glad that you are a savior who dwells with a broken world. We're grateful that through your grace and through your mercy that you move into the neighborhood, that you come to us. Our longing, Lord, is that you would come again, that you would come afresh, that you would come anew both in the middle time now and in the future. And as we prepare ourselves for this Christmas, Lord, would you perhaps shape and form us into the types of people who are living readied lives, who are prepared for all that you want to do in the world this day. We thank you for being our God, and we are so grateful to be your people. And it's in your son, our Lord and our Savior's name that we pray. And all the people of God said, amen.